Greetings. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm Fernando, your host. We'll be reading a few of the meditation books or just quoting on them. For instance, just for today from Daily Meditations from the NA Group book, 365 Days. Day 155 says, As we understand, we examine our lives and discover who we really are. To be truly human is to accept and honestly Try to be ourselves. Woo-hoo. Wow. Basic text, page 35. Yeah, when we're, when we're out there pushing the envelope, it requires a different attitude and a different person that we're always making excuses or angry when someone challenges our situation in life. When we're happy, joyous, and free is usually when we're not covering anything, right? I get angry if someone challenges me on something, you know, because I know I should be doing it. So the anger represents my guilt. When I began to enter a new life and had to be uh, honest, my behavior appropriate for that gave me uh, a good look at myself. How do I talk to people? How do I dress? How do I behave in public? And I needed to change myself. I noticed that if I go with my work clothes, I tend to uh, speak more rough. But when I prepare and go on Sunday clothes, then I speak too holy. But if I go in easy does it, um, comfort clothes, I speak comfortably. Isn't that something? So we've been talking about putting our suits on and ties on uh, Friday. And I'm thinking, I don't know. I'm going to act like a a Pharisee that I know it all. Amazing, huh? The 12 steps gives us a simple method for finding out who we really are. We uncover our assets and our defects, the things we like about ourselves and the things we are, we're not so thrilled about. Through the healing power of the 12 steps, we begin to understand that we are individuals created to be who we are by our higher power of our understanding. The real healing begins when we understand that if our higher power created us this way, it must be okay to be who we really are. Just for today, by working the steps, I can experience the freedom to be myself, the person my higher power intended or created me to be. You know, one of the things I say just for today, I am grateful to be me. I'm thankful. I'm thankful for all my laziness. I am thankful for all my commitments that I probably do got more than I need. I'm thankful for my lack of wisdom and how to say no to some of the commitments and and work on my own library and my own self, shuffling my books and my own little projects. I get involved in too many people's... Uh, and that itself, I'm thankful that I'm not probably trying to do so much. I'm not effective in the little that I should. So I'm thankful for that so I won't beat myself up. But... I don't, uh, sometimes it's overwhelming, uh, the work in being of service. And you have to say, I, I can do all things through Christ. Uh, 
Who strengthens me? How I understand my God. I understand through trial and error where my words and my attitude, where it comes power. I thank you, God, I'm a mess up. I thank you, God, I'm a mess up. I messed up. Yep, I, I, I agree with it. I thank God for it. And I leave it alone and I move on. I thank you, God, I can do all things for Christ who strengthens me. I thank you, God, that God is working on my self-pity as I work with others, as I as I keep pushing and keep acting like a servant. You know, now the idea is, is, to, is to take a bucket of hot water with soap and fresh water and clean the, the cement tables before we have our barbecue on Friday night. You know, I wouldn't want to put eat my hand, you know, on, on dusty tables. The tables are dusty. It's a very dusty town. Um, so that would be really humbling for me, even though there's more newer guys that can do that. But we always elect somebody, but they send to Peter off. Yeah. And it so goes with the other benches where the, the birds have a say-so. And claim the benches, so we have to clean them up. So people come in, and even the hecklers will have a good, clean place to enjoy their their heckling. Hecklers don't bring anything, but they always uh, irritate irritate the doers. Irritate the hecklers. <laughs> anyway, I hope I'm a good doer. We're going to move on real quick like and read Courage for Today for um, May 28th. So let's do that and see if we can. May 11th, moving real fast. See what the, the living, these words that are alive, where they take us to. So let's go ahead and open it up with a moment of silence, but followed by the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Thank you, Father. Thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you for giving us ears to hear, eyes to see, and strength to imagine proper things. Help us to use our imagination properly. Imagine ourselves as we really are and effectively. Easy, happy, clean, joyous lives. Helpful lives. Amen. All right. Here we go. Courage to Change, May 28th. I have heard it said that the only valid comparisons are between myself as I am and myself as I used to be. When I think of step two and of being restored to sanity, such a comparison comes to mind. I remember an incident some 20 years ago in which I was riding my motorcycle to a meditation class. I was late and in a big hurry to arrive on time. Right outside the meeting place, I crashed my bike. <laughs> my attempt to force solutions to rush to an encounter which serenity had failed. Did I feel contrite? Not exactly. Even then, I felt the irony of rushing to meditation, but mainly I felt angry that the town had failed to maintain 
the road in which I was riding. Rather than taking responsibility for my own haste and carelessness, I blamed others and saw myself as a victim. I did not feel thankful to have survived. I felt angry that I had been roughed up and thrown off schedule. Today's reminder. Looking back, I see my examples of the grace of a power greater than myself at work in my life. I see progress and being restored to sanity, and I am increasingly confident that my progress will continue. Our business in life is not to get ahead of other people, but to get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> that was from Maltby D. Babcock. What a name, huh? Our business and life is not to get ahead of other people, but to get ahead of ourselves. That's beautiful. That's exactly what my prayer was. Isn't that fantastic? These are words of gold, folks. Gold. All we have to do is meditate on these words, write them down, meditate them on them, and it gives us a good view. Yesterday, there was a very um, cultured, young lady, about 41, beautiful in shape, speaking at our 12-step meeting, very eloquently. She said, by the way, I'm going to post it up on this, uh, Katie is her name. Um, I asked her if it's okay to record her. She says, fine. So I'm going to post it probably in, in this, after I'm done here, it'll be on this podcast. Okay. Her name is Katie. And one of the things she said is that her four years of foundation was Elnon. Elnon gave her uh, the they gave her the mother she needed, the grandmother the kids needed, uh, all the love and tender. When uh, she had her wedding, her mother was too drunk to attend, and and the Elnon ladies were there and helped out. Just very intelligent culture. Then she went to AA to take care of her drinking. And then she flourished. She had a foundation. And then from that foundation, there was a rocket. And now she just sponsors a bunch of gals and they have a lot of fun. And they're all very good looking too. Very good culture uh, ladies that are a very thriving group. You know, we're going to, we can be that person. And I believe that's what these words are push us to. Not to be lazy, but to uh, be the best person ahead of ourselves. Our business in life is not to get ahead of other people, but to get ahead of ourselves. If we do that, I wouldn't want to be a pleasant, pleasant life. I know it would be for me, folks. And we're made in the same image. Okay, I'm going to read, move on. Hope I'm not going... Uh, trying to put too much in the hopper to you, you know, so be like, whoa, Fernando, you're just principle and point after point. Hope for today, May 28. Serenity often comes and goes in my life, depending on the effort I put into welcoming it or pushing it away. I can't will serenity, but I can create an environment where it's more likely to blossom. Sometimes I slip back into character defects. Often these bouts are triggered because I allow myself to get too hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. During these times, I like to push serenity away. I might skip a few meetings or forget to call my sponsor. 
Perhaps I fall back into association with people who reinforce my self-defeating attitudes. Other times I do the things necessary to invite serenity into my life. I get a good night's sleep, read my Alna literature in the morning, exercise, eat well, work responsibility, get to a meeting, and call someone in a program. I also continue to work the steps, especially four through nine. I continue to make peace with my past and stay peaceful by practicing step 10. I feel more open to serenity. So what makes me waver between the two attitudes? It's my degree of willingness to surrender. Sometimes I have days when I just don't feel like it. I act childish and spurn my higher power by refusing to surrender to his will. On other days, I surrender. <clears throat> my other days, surrender comes easily. And I used to think I was powerless over my willingness. Then I realized that it was up to me. When I don't feel willing to surrender, I can surrender that too. Now, one of my favorite prayer is, God, please help me to be willing to be willing. Amen. You know, I... Back on my first reading on the uh, about the guy with the motorcycle and the haste and the haste that was me. Haste, haste makes waste. You know, I think that's why they gave us um, work uh, every hour and forty five minutes to take a break, and let your let my soul catch up to my body. Okay, moving on. Hope for today. You know, uh, the program is beautiful. Um, I apologize if I try to push my God on you. Everybody has a God of their own understanding. Uh, I try to do better. And that's why I try to separate the two. It's very difficult for me to separate the two. I am what I am, like Popeye. And it's what given me life and understanding. May 28th. The greater danger of admitting resentment into our minds and hearts is that it often leads to retaliation. We feel justified in even up the scores and paying somebody back for what they have done to us. But how can I logically punish someone for what he or she did to me when I cannot phantom their intentions or motives? Perhaps the hurt was not intended. Perhaps we were oversensitive. Or as in the case of the alcoholic, most of us have suffered from unkindness. We have often been told in Elman that the alcoholic behavior toward the family is actually the backlash from his or, his or her own guilt and self-hatred. <laughs> Let's read that again. But how can I logically punish someone for what he or she did to me when I cannot phantom their intentions or motives? Perhaps the hurt was not intended. Perhaps we were oversensitive. Or, as in the case of the alcoholic, most of us have suffered from unkindness. We have been told in Elnon that the alcoholic's behavior towards the family is actually the backlash from his or her own guilt and self-hatred. Wow. Today's reminder, nobody has given me the right to punish anyone for anything our higher power has reserved the right to himself. Vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine, said the Lord. Therefore, any attempt at retaliation for an injury can only react unhappily on me. 
Robert G. Ingersoll, in nature there are neither rewards nor punishments. There are consequences. You know, I should do a podcast on just taking all the quotes from here. Just put all the quotes and then speak on the quotes because these are amazing. The best of the best the world has to offer through individuals that have learned things through experience. Like this one, Robert G. Ingersoll. In nature, there are neither rewards nor punishments. There are consequences. Huh. Think, see, think about that for a while. That's meditation, guys. That's letting the words seep in. Or you can say that with God, in God, there are neither rewards nor punishment. There are consequences. And But God can't do that. God is good. When I was a child, I used to think, well, God, you know, it's so easy to, re- to believe in God. God, in rhymes with good, you just stretch God out, how God, how great and good his God is, and that's his name, good. He can't be anything else. So, in God, there are rewards, and we choose our punishment by getting away from his sunlight. If I get away from his sunlight, I have chosen my punishment, right? There are laws, spiritual laws and consequences, so very easily. If I stay in the in the program where they pray in and they pray out, the blessing of God is there. I feel it. I sense it. I go. I have the love and the enthusiasm of the meeting. Go with me for the day. It's an insurance policy. Meetings, meetings, meetings with other people. God said, he said, I have placed my blessing on the, on the gathering of the people. And that's it, right? I think we, we're done, folks. Thank you so much for coming in here. I'm going to go ahead and, uh, that was easy, huh? Got all three books, four books. I'm going to go ahead and right away put Katie. Just listen to her. She's an amazing gal. Listen to it four, five, six times and learn it well. There's, there's a good fruit of Elnon right there. A wonderful example of what the words and Elnon do in a person's life. Coming right up, our speaker is going to be Katie on the next segment. Thank you so much for coming in here. Let's go ahead and close with the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Amen. Keep coming back. It works because we're working it. Can you guys hear me? Okay, I'm going to set the timer. Not that I think I can talk for 45 minutes, but... Good evening, everyone. My name is Katie. I'm an alcoholic. How are you guys on this fine Friday? Um, Thank you, Les, for reaching out and asking me to lead. Um, I'm humbled to be standing here in front of you guys tonight. I've got 14 and a half years of sobriety. Um, God and sobriety are my greatest gift. I stand before you as a sober woman. My children have never seen me drink. Um, It truly is my greatest blessing to be here as a sober woman on a Friday night. Um, 
Alex, you talked about contrary action, and when you texted me last, I have never said no to an AA commitment. And my little head got in there and was like, oh, it's Friday night, and I have a weekend full. I think there's 11 baseball, softball, and soccer games between tomorrow morning and Monday. There are 33 other things I could be doing right now, but this is the most important. Showing up for you guys, telling my truth, staying humble in who I am, and protecting my sobriety. So um, thank you, Les. I love you. You've been a part of my journey for many years, and I'm super grateful that we have stayed in touch. Um, so I've been sober 14 and a half years, and I'm going to tell you just a little bit about my, my story. And mine starts out a little bit different. Alcoholism has been a part of my life since I was born. Um, I was raised in Iowa with a mom, dad, and I was an only child for six years. Of those six years, um, I want to say like four of them were pretty rough. I had drunk parents, alcoholic parents, who um, were extremely, what I would say is unpredictable. And when I say that, I mean my dad was the fun guy that, you know, in Iowa you had snowstorms. So he and his neighbor buddies, um, David, Lynn, and Alan Lundquist would come over and we had a sauna in our basement and they would go rolling around in the snow and then they'd go in the sauna and then they'd go roll in the snow and then my mom would take pictures and we'd frame them and we'd put them on the wall for artwork. So it was like that unpredictability, but he was fun and everybody wanted to be around him. My dad is a light. He attracts people even to this day. My mom was the very smart, valedictorian, prim and proper, great grammar, um, could fool you and tell you exactly what you wanted to hear, but she was the person behind closed doors who would get drunk and pee your pants and light the chair on fire and fall asleep in the middle of like an important dinner. So I had the two extremes, right? So I'm this only child living in Iowa. And I knew from a very young age that I was different. I felt different. Um, I had trouble really connecting to people, but I could relate to you. I could become who you needed me to be and I could save, fix, control, manipulate, whatever you needed me to do, I could do it. And I did it very effortlessly with like grace and dignity as contradictory as that sounds. Um, <clears throat> I struggled when my mom found out she was pregnant with my sister. Um, we thought she had cancer. We thought she had a tumor in the stomach and she came home. It was a S September day in Iowa, um, standing on our deck. And she said, I have something to tell you. You're going to be a big sister. You're going to have a sister in five weeks. So five weeks later, this miracle baby comes into my life and her name is Allie. Um, she's six years younger than I am. And my entire world was flipped upside down. I went from being their everything to what I perceived or felt as nothing. This baby became everything. So not only did I feel as a young child that I was different and I just wasn't normal, now I don't matter, okay? So I went through life um, looking back, kind of resenting this baby, but then I would take on this baby as like a task. Oh, if I change her diaper and I feed her and I show up for her, my parents are gonna love me more and I'm gonna be accepted and I'm gonna be wanted. Well, that never really happened. And I just kept doing and doing and doing and doing and doing and never really getting any kind of recognition um, or affirmations from my parents. You know, obviously now knowing what I know, they could not meet my emotional needs. Two alcoholic parents raising children couldn't give me what I needed, right? So when um, I was, gosh, 19, 18, 19, I left Iowa for a, like a couple weeks in the summer. My girlfriend's sister worked at Blizzard Beach in Florida. And my friend Kelly Roberson said, why don't you go down and let's go see my sister Paige. Uh, my mom's gonna fly us down. Paige will pick us up at the airport. We'll have a blast. We'll get to go to all the theme parks for free and live it up. And I'm like, great. So we go down to Florida 
And the first night I got there, all of these lifeguards for Blizzard Beach were partying, and I had never had a sip of alcohol because I was going to be the child that never drank. I was never going to pick up a cigarette. Um, why would I ever want to become like my mother or my father? And they made Jello shots that night, and um, I loved cherry Jello. I no longer like cherry Jello, but um, they made Jello shots, and I don't know how many I had, but I can tell you that when I woke up the next morning, the ends of my hair were the color of cherry Jello. And I woke up and I looked and felt like absolute shit and there was a stain on this carpet. And I was mortified. I had all of these um, lifeguards who were probably, I don't know, 19 to 25 staring at me like, look what you did. And there again, there's that validation of I'm not good enough. I'm not normal. I couldn't even drink like these people, but I had no recognition. I just thought that the jello was bad. So I go back to Iowa. I continue living my life. I'm. <laughs> Stone cold sober, didn't drink in high school. Um, in fact, I was like the designated driver. I was very responsible. I'm like your typical Al-Anon alcoholic, right? And um, it wasn't until I turned 20, almost 20 and a half, um, I decided that I wanted to move to Florida to go to college. And when I lived in my apartment, I had roommates. I had one from Key West, I had one from upstate New York, I had one from Chicago, and then I was from Des Moines, Iowa. We all moved in together, nobody knew each other, and nobody had really partied. So we decided that we were going to go out, and um, one of the ladies that was at the bar, we were at the ale house, she ordered a skinny bitch. And I said, well, what is that? So that's a Diet Coke and vodka, and I'm like, great. Looking at that now, my mother would drink Diet Coke, or take a shot of vodka and chase it with Diet Coke. But I thought, oh, I'm gonna mix them together, so I'm not gonna be like my mom. Well, Skinny Bitch became my best friend. And um, I don't really have a great drunkalogue. I drank from when I was 20 to 26. I drank Skinny Bitches pretty much every time I went out. Um, although I did work for Gallo Wine. I don't think any of you know this, but I did work for Gallo Wine. That was my first job out of, um, out of college. And I had to obviously drink wine. I mean, when you work for a wine company, you've got to drink wine. That's a big deal. And we would travel up to Napa and Sonoma and uh, definitely looking back. I mean, I could control my alcoholism to a certain extent because I was getting paid, right? I didn't want to get fired. And um, I knew that the minute that first sip of whatever I was drinking hit my tongue, I would instantly think that sip is not enough and a hundred's going to be too many. How do I control and find that balance? And that was the struggle that I had for the six years of my drinking career is how can I go out tonight and just have one, or just have two, or just have enough to where I don't get drunk or to where I don't throw up. And looking back now, it's, it was one of those things, it was the, the emotional and mental part of me trying to control my drinking was exhausting. And then I would end up failing myself and I would leave myself disappointed. And then I would say, I'm never gonna do that again. And then I'd wait, you know, two, three weeks because I wasn't an everyday drinker. I was the fun Katie who loved to go to the bar. And I'd be like, this time it's gonna be different. I'm gonna do it differently. And I would have every intention to do it differently and then the same shit would happen and I would be addicted to that set of feelings that would leave me disappointed. So um, let me take you back to 2006, living in San Dimas. I'm 23 years old. I was dating or engaged to a man who would have been, what, 29. Um, and we drank together socially and he would make comments like under his breath, like, oh, you're really unpredictable or what kind of Katie's gonna come out tonight? And I'd be like, oh my gosh, I got this. 
we're gonna be fine, it's gonna be fine. And I, I remember looking at him and he would kind of like watch me from the corner of his eye because I was so fun. I was the girl that was on the table and then I'd have you guys all on the table and then someone would take their clothes off and then you'd take your clothes off and everybody just loved fun Katie because she never caused trouble. She never, looking, I guess that is kind of troublish, but I never got in trouble. Like it was just fun and it was accepted <laughs> if you kind of know what I'm saying. You have to really understand that. Um, but my husband was always very discontent or uncomfortable when I would pull out that, that trick. And um, he had, when I was 23, he had deviated septum surgery in his nose and um, had it on a Thursday. And on that Saturday night, my sister came to town with a couple girlfriends and he said, you know, I'm gonna stay in and get some rest. And I'm like, great, I was very responsible. I called us a cab, we went to the San Dimas Bowling Alley because that's where I would like to frequent. They had uh, skinny bitches and they had karaoke. So we would go to the San Dimas Bowling Alley and that night my cab driver that would pick us up didn't show up. And so uh, lo and behold, I would never get behind the wheel because I'm responsible. My sister sees a friend from um, the college that she went to out here and he offered to give us a ride home, sober. And so he takes us home and he has a raised, uh, Jeep Wrangler and it was pretty noisy I don't know if it had like some kind of exhaust on it but he pulled in the driveway and it's you know he's like revving the engine or it's just making these loud noises and I was pretty drunk but I remember walking in and my husband waking up from this deviated septum surgery you know he's about what 24 or 36 hours and he looked at me like I'll never forget the way he looked at me it was with utter disgust and he slammed the bedroom door and was like I'll see you in the morning and I'm pretty good at talking my way out of things. And that night I couldn't talk my way out of it. I ended up falling asleep. Um, so the door is here. I put my legs up against the door. So my butt was at the base of the door and I kicked the door and I was convinced that I was gonna kick the door till he let me in. Well, I passed out and that's where I woke up. And I know that that's not like a ditch or in jail, but it was really gross that next morning. I woke up in this little hallway with my legs on top of a door and mascara was all over and um, that was the first time I really, really felt shame and guilt around my drinking. Not only was I disappointed in myself and the behavior and the wreckage that I had caused, I was disgusted with how I had disrespected my husband who um, had actually wasn't even my husband, yes, he was my husband. Um, how I disrespected him after he was recovering from this surgery. And so I remember that day very, very well. Um, I had been in Al-Anon for six years. I had an Al-Anon sponsor, her name is Diana. She is also an AA, many of you probably know her. Um, and Mike came out of the bedroom, maybe around like 11 o'clock that day, and he said to me, um, I don't, I'm not gonna fight with you, but I want a divorce. We had been married three months to that day. And I was like, oh, a divorce, okay. And I played it off, because you know I'm gonna put up a wall, you'll never see how I really feel. God forbid I'm vulnerable with you. And um, I remember calling Diana and I said, I need to go to an AA meeting with you. And she said, great, there's the Pitzer meeting tonight at seven o'clock, it was a Sunday night. And she said, I'll pick you up. I said, perfect. So we go to the Pitzer meeting together. And this is one of my favorite aha moments of my sobriety story. We walk in, there are hundreds of people if you've ever been to the Pitzer meeting. I did not know anyone. And as the person from the podium stood up and said, are there any newcomers in their first 30 days of their meetings who would like to introduce themselves? Please stand up and, and say your name. And I'm looking around and my sponsor looks at me and she's like, stand up. And I'm like, 
she took my arm and like pulled me out of my seat and said, stand up and introduce yourself. And I said, hi, my name is Kate. I could not tell you that I was Katie and I was an alcoholic. I said, my name is Kate and I'm an alcoholic. And everybody clapped and they gave me a welcome chip and the speaker was profound that night. Um, her story was incredible and she really touched my heart. But I had no intention of getting sober. I went to that meeting to save my marriage. I woke up that next Monday on November 5th, a sober woman. And I have remained sober every single day since that day. And I share that with you because I am one of the lucky ones who just poof, got sobriety, and I have never really had any difficulty with it. With that being said, when I tell you that it's my greatest gift, it is because my mother died from this disease. My mother continued her drinking career um, well through my years at UCF when I moved to Florida, so much so that her varices in her throat popped. Um, she had jaundice, she had elephantitis, she had a liver transplant, then she was sober for nine years. And then one of my cousins um, got diagnosed with, with cancer of the lung and it was terminal. And that was like a daughter to my mom. And that just sent my mom into a tailspin and my mom relapsed. And that was back in 2015. And she died February of 2016. And we never did an autopsy report, but I found two little airplane bottles of vodka. And I stand here before you because I watched her do everything, a transplant, go to AA meetings, get a sponsor. She went to Hazleton in Minnesota. She did all the things that we do and she could not get the gift of sobriety. And so it's important for me as a sober woman to give back. Um, my favorite meetings before COVID were the, the women's meetings at the Harvard and Harrison um, Church in Claremont where a lot of the women would come out of prison and they had discovered AA and God in, in prison. And they would come out and they, they not looked out a window. They didn't know how to turn a cell phone on. They didn't know how to acclimate to life. And so I would go and I would sit with these women and have coffee and just listen to their stories and help them learn how to use a cell phone or talk about how they should approach their child now that they're out of the penitentiary. Um, they'd ask me for rides on the bus. I mean, these are like, some of the women were scary. They, they'd murdered people. And I'd see them at Target on a rainy night and they'd ask me for a ride home. And I was scared to death, but you know what? I'm a sober woman of integrity and I would ask God, like God guide me, help me give this person exactly what they need. Allow you to speak through me so I can touch their heart. And I miss that meeting. I miss that meeting a lot. It taught me a lot about my life and it taught me a lot of you know, humility and it humbled me every single day that I attended that meeting. And in my recovery, um, you know, I spend a lot of time um, reading and really trying to understand why do we do what we do. And I think tonight when I think back about my, my drinking and how it played a role in, in my life, I think back to that child who felt that she was never a part of. She was unwanted. She was alone. Um, she wasn't normal. She didn't know how to fit in. She didn't know how to connect, but she could force her way in or she could manipulate it. So it looked authentic, but it never felt right in my soul. And when I discovered alcohol, it was as if alcohol gave me that false sense of identity because it was like, oh my God, I can breathe. I can, 
fucking get on top of a table or I can walk up to the guy that I thought was cute because I felt like I had it all. And it wasn't until I started, you know, really getting into the steps and the recovery and understanding why do we do what we do and why is the addiction, I mean, I know that the addiction runs, I'm a very extreme person um, with everything I do to this day. If I buy one laundry detergent on sale, I buy 12. If I go to the gym, I go every day for two hours. Um, If I'm in a binge, I'm in a binge on food. Like that's just how I am. But I really want to be in touch with why am, why am I doing it? What, what is it inside of me? What am I feeling? And so I've really studied a lot about, you know, tapped into my feelings and gone back into drunk Katie versus sober Katie. And when I look at why did I have to drink? Well, what was that? I didn't know what I was feeling. I just knew that I felt uncomfortable, unwanted, unloved, and alone. I just felt different. And I remember the sensations like, you know, when you walk into a bar before you have that first sip or, or into a party where you're not wanted or you don't feel that you're a part of or you're not pretty enough or you're not this. And it's that feeling inside of you, right? It's, I don't know how I'm going to do this, so I'm going to drink to be able to get through it. And then I'd have that first sip and it was like, oh God, that's not enough. I got it. Where's the next one coming from, right? Um... It just wasn't enough. And now that I'm sober, I can tap into my feelings and I can feel, oh, I'm sad. And I feel the sadness. And I want to understand, okay, well, what's making me sad? And just stay in the feeling and not the thought that follows the feeling. And so the more that I step in and really connect with my body and don't let my mind, like Alexandra said, you know, our mind will tell us, oh, we don't belong here or we don't need to go to AA or, oh, maybe I can be different now. You know, I have a lot of people that will say to me, oh, maybe I can go out and be different now that I've been sober 20 years. Like that's, that's the mind that's those thoughts that make us crazy, right? And then if you listen to those thoughts, you go back to drink and where are we? We're far up, far worse than we were when we quit drinking in the beginning so I'm really mindful now of what's causing me to feel different or sad or frustrated or whatever the feeling is even happy what's causing me that and how can I just sit and and let the discomfort it's typically the negative feelings that I have to sit with and not react to the thoughts that are following the feeling how can I sit in my discomfort rather than go find a quick fix, alcohol or food or whatever your quick fix is. Whereas in the past, it was like the minute I'd feel something, I would, I would have to go drink. Or I would stuff my feelings because I didn't want to deal with them and then I'd wait until I did go out and drink. And then I would feel even more shame and more guilt and more disappointment the next day because I had repressed all of what I felt and let the alcohol take over. So the alcohol became It was a, you know, like I said, it was kind of like a false identity, but it was a crutch that allowed me to be who I thought I wanted to be. And sometimes that was freeing until I took it too far. And so I I really think about the person that I was when I drank and what I loved about that person minus the alcohol and how can I stand before you today as a sober woman and stand in my freedom and my power and be that person that I've always wanted to be.
And I'm finally figuring it out, you guys. Like, I am good enough. My self-worth and my character assets, and I still have character defects, but all of who I've ever wanted to be was within. I just had to figure out and I had to go through that murky water to stand before you today to tell you that I was always good enough. It was my sick thoughts and my alcoholism that tried to derail me. And so as I, as I'm parenting my children and, you know, in a marriage, because people don't talk about, well, people don't tell you, you know, oh, when you get sober, you're still going to have, you know, trouble raising kids or you're going to have marriage. Like marriage is fucking hard. Anybody with me? And I'm married to a pretty good guy and I'm raising a 13 year old who is hitting puberty and his emotions and, and I'm struggling. He's struggling. And I was just telling someone here tonight, I'm like, I can't imagine not being present and sober and dealing with that because it's hard. It's challenging. It's tough. But I put my nose to the grind and I'm like, okay, God, guide me. Show me who I'm supposed to be to show up in my marriage, to show up to my son, to show up to my daughter, to be there for my friends, to show up as a realtor, to show up as a life coach, to show up, to show up, to show up, to show up here for you tonight. God, show me who I'm supposed to be. Disclose that to me with grace and dignity and confidence. Check my ego at the door. Like, allow me to just stand in my power and tell you my truth. Because alcoholism has taken so much from me. My dad still drinks actively every day. It's not near as bad as it was because, remember I told you, he's unpredictable and he's fun. He would wear, in Iowa, he would go in our garage and he'd wear one of those caps that when you go skiing, you know, it's like would be neon green with like the black fur. He'd get all bundled up and he'd go sit in the garage and he would smoke cigarettes or cigars and he would drink whiskey and bourbon and then he'd get really mean and then sometimes he'd drink beer and he'd be doing super dickheads off the pool off the diving board at the pool um so it was like alcoholism has taken so much from me it took my whole childhood I had to figure it out lie cheat manipulate steal to get what I needed to survive and I will be damned if it's going to take who I'm supposed to be I am so unbelievably grateful to AA and to Diana. She doesn't sponsor me anymore, but I will never forget when she took that right arm and said, stand up and introduce yourself because I don't know where I'd be had she not done that. And even though my truth was I was Kate, I was an alcoholic because I was ashamed and I felt like I didn't belong and I couldn't tell you because my ego was too big. I had this great wall of China and this wall and the bricks that I had stacked because if you really knew who I was, what would you think? But now it doesn't matter what you think because all that matters is what I think. And today I can tell you that like I stand before you with friends and a new friend, I have a, another new friend, I have an old friend, I have an old friend, I have my kids' friends. Like I am so blessed with people that show up for me every single day. And in return, I get to show up for them. I get to be of service. I get to hold commitments. I, I don't love to sponsor, and that's hard for me to say because sponsors, I think, are the glue to this program. I don't love it. So when people call me and are like, oh my gosh, can you sponsor me? I'm like, I will guide you until you find the perfect sponsor. 
And that's hard for me to tell you my truth, but that is my truth. I will never let anyone fail, but I will help you find a sponsor. I will pick up these cigarette butts that people smoke at the Triangle Club. Like nothing is too great for me today. And growing up, you know, I, I feel like Al-Anon gave me some wings, but I was still in the nest. Like I would flap my wings. I lived in the nest. I had people that showed up as mothers and grandmothers. They were the ones that threw me my bridal shower and came to my wedding. And then I got pregnant and they showed up because my mom was too busy drinking. And so Al-Anon gave me the, the foundation of who I am today. And then at 26, when I decided to get sober, AA has given me my life. I'm only 14 and a half, living in a 41-year-old's body, raising two kids that's married in a crazy world with crazy things happening. And what I've realized, like it talks about in the big book, we can't control people, places, and things. We can control, and I tell my children, I'm like, imagine that you have a hula hoop around you. We can control what's in our hula hoop, kids. That's it. That's all we have control over. That is it. And so as I am aware, I raise my awareness every day. I want to vibrate at the highest possible level and calibrate so high and attract that same energy to my life so we can become better. We can become the light in this dark world. That is what's saving me. I don't need to go out and try to fix the politics and all of the shit that's happening. I can only control what I do in my hula hoop. I can have ideas, I can share them, but I can't get fixated on trying to control and change and manipulate because that's who I was. It makes me crazy. And so as I, as I raise my awareness and I realize what's happening you know, in this world with people that are still alcoholics, with my family, you know, it's I'm, I'm aware, but today I set boundaries. I have consequences and then I follow through. I have a backup plan. I take care of myself. I no longer rely on you to give me what I think I need or what I thought I needed for me to feel better. I am solely responsible for myself. So when my dad showed up last, uh, was it last weekend or the weekend before, um, he, has, he lived out, my mom and dad actually moved out here when my son was born, so 13 years ago. Um, and then my mom died here in California. My dad stayed here all of this time by himself. And then he decided in November to move back to Iowa with my sister and he built a house. So the first time he came back was two weekends ago and he called, he has a little girlfriend cause you know, he does that dating online stuff and he doesn't really know what he's doing on computers. And so his, his little, um, location was in Simi Valley, even though he was living in Upland. So he was making a big commute to go see this young lady. And they're doing the distance right now. And he came out to see her and he said, you know, hell, maybe we, my dad's really funny. He's all, hell, maybe we can get together for dinner. Shit, would you like that? And I'm like, yeah, I would. I would like to see you for dinner. But the old me would have been resentful and frustrated that he didn't show up to California to rescue me, to come and stay with me, to take care of me. How dare you go see your girlfriend when you have a daughter here? Because that's how I used to live. And so when he showed up for dinner, with this young lady, I treated her with the utmost respect, even though it was hard. She's not my mom. It's weird to see him with someone else. And he ordered his two bourbons or scotch or whatever he had. And I didn't get to look at the price and see what he was drinking and watch, you know, pour water in it. All the shit that I did growing up to try to get him to stop drinking. I just sat there and I'm like, wow, I'm so grateful that he's not staying with me. 
I mean, you guys, that is growth because in the past I would have, I would have manipulated and controlled him and forced him to stay with me. And then I would have been so resentful and angry. And then I would have been an asshole and then he would have left and we would have been fighting and it's just dysfunction at its finest. And so after dinner, I said, what are you doing tomorrow, dad? Gianna's got a soccer game in Irvine. Would you like to come out? And he kind of thought about it, and he's like, well, shit, you know, I suppose, yeah, I suppose we can come out there. I had zero expectations for him to show up, but he did. And he got to see his granddaughter play a great game. And then the next night, he said, can I borrow your forerunner? I need a car. And I said, absolutely. Why don't you come to the house? We'll get some pizza, and we'll hang out for a little bit. And I invited the girlfriend into my home because that's what I was taught in these rooms. We treat people with grace and dignity and kindness, whether they deserve it or not. And she's a wonderful woman. And so I went one more time to meet my dad in Pasadena and you know, I had to laugh because Green Street Cafe, if none of you have ever been there, it's my favorite restaurant in Pasadena. I love the Diane salad, <laughs> love it. And uh, my dad says, hell, what's good on the menu? And I said, I really think you'd like the Karen's Club, dad. Well, his girlfriend ordered the Diane salad because she liked what I ordered. Well, then my dad ordered the salad and I said, Dad, I'm 41 years old. I have never seen you eat a salad. Yeah, I don't really like them. Well, why did you order it? So he orders the Diane salad. Oh, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Because the girlfriend got it. So he's got to do what the girlfriend likes, right? So he gets the Diane salad and uh, he takes a couple bites and my son Pietro says, Bubba, what do you think? And he's like, oh, I mean, shit, it's all right. It's all right. And I'm like, but remember we told you that you didn't like salad. Well, shit, you know, sometimes, yeah. And it's just, I had to laugh because in the past I would have needed to fix it. I would have needed to go order in the Karen's Club and make, make a scene and cause a ruckus because that's how I got attention and that's who I was. And I'm just, it was like watching my family from above because I didn't join that three ring circus. I'm just accepting those people for who they are. And when my dad left, you know, he's 71 and I can tell he's slowing down, but my dad showed up for me when I had Pietro. They moved their entire life to California. And I may not have agreed with how he spent his evenings with alcohol, but he was the best grandpa that I could have ever asked for. And now he gets to go home and do it for my sister and my little nieces. And without these rooms and the sponsorship and working the steps, I would have never been able to look at that as a gift because I would have only focused on the bad, that he is still drinking. And so as, as I reflect, you know, today I was thinking, I'm like, I am lucky that I had him here for those 13 years because I got to experience him through my children's eyes and watch him do for them and my mom. My mom was amazing with my daughter. They took care of my children in a way that they did not know how to take care of me. And they showed up for my kids. And my daughter's 10, my mom died when Gianna was four. And my daughter will still say things like, oh, I just wish Mima were here to paint my nails. Or if we could have pretzels and watch Sophia the first. And my four-year-old remembers that. And had I not taken a chance on this alcoholic woman to babysit my daughter, my daughter wouldn't have those memories. But people in AA said, just start with an hour. Let them just try an hour. Go hang out at the restaurant around the corner. And if something happens, they'll call you. 
and that hour turned into three hours, and then it was three hours two times a week, and then it was five hours three times a week, and then before, it was like my kids wanted to go there every Friday night and spend the night. And so I am lucky. Even though my parents could not meet my needs, this program and my sobriety has given me a new outlook on life and given me new perception. It's like a fresh set of eyes on how I can perceive others in this world. And that to me is a gift. So even though I haven't been to jail yet, and what was the YET, what's that stand for? Yeah, that's great. Because I haven't had really any yets. But I've seen so many people who have. I've seen a drunk mother fall and hit her eye and go into a coma, small brain bleed and die. That's my experience with alcoholism. That could be me. And so it's very important to me, to my heart, to my soul, that I stay connected to all of you people. Every single one of you, even though our stories are all different, they're the same. We have those, those no legs. We can't grow normal legs. And when we stand here together as a united group and we tell the truth and we clear the wreckage of our past and we share the truth because really the truth is good enough. It frees us from all of that, those sick thoughts that follow that feeling that leave us disappointed. And you get to stand up here or sit there and you're free. And I know some days are harder and I know some of us struggle. I mean, I struggle with food, guys. I get it. Like, I can't... But you, the mental part of addiction is exhausting. And so people who struggle on a daily with alcohol and drugs, I have never had a bigger prayer for God to answer for all of the people that struggle on a daily basis with this. It breaks my heart. But I promise that if you keep, keep doing what you're told to be doing and keep showing up and put everything you have into this, where it talks about in the reading where if you have the willingness to show up here and put in the work, this program will not fail you. And the people here will give back what they have to give. And it's all about the experience, strength, and hope that we, we rely on so we can stay connected into this inner circle. And the more we think we can step out of it, Alex, like you talked about, the closer we need to get to our recovery. Because the longer I feel, even though I have no urge to drink, the, the more sobriety I get, the stronger my mental part of my brain is like, oh, you may not need, oh, you may not need, no, I do. I probably need it now more than ever. Raising kids in this world is, is tough, and this is my sanity. So for those of you that might be new or struggling, um, I would love to pray for you if you want to connect after this. Whatever I can do to help you on your journey, because those people that showed up for me at that Pitzer meeting and they're on until today, those are who've saved my life. You guys have raised me. You've shown up for me. And I am forever grateful to Bill and Lois for giving me this life and the friendships that I've developed through, through AA. They're unlike anything else. They're real. They're authentic. There's no surface. It's this is my truth and you still love me through it. That's pretty amazing. But guess what? I get to love you through it too. So I don't know how much time. Okay, we're at 38 minutes.
Um, I don't feel like there's a whole lot more, but um, I will tell you that in, um, you know, in my AA recovery and working the steps and, you know, showing up to different meetings, it was told to me in Al-Anon, but I applied it to AA as well. You know, go to different meetings, meet up with different people, see what, what's out there. And I used to attend a um, meeting in Newport Beach. I was at like a boathouse. Did you ever go there, Amber, with Diana? And I stepped out of my San Gabriel area to go down and connect with, and I absolutely loved what I experienced. Then I go to Iowa to see my sister, and I step into AA there. And I went to Europe, and I stepped into AA there. And I step into AA wherever I can. And what I love is that we are all the same. We have different stories, but we're all the same. The common denominator is we are here to stay sober. And this program will work if you allow it to work for you. And so I think that's, I just want to close with thank you, God, for allowing me to stand up here before you. I really am humbled, and I want to pray for all of you. Um, Les, I love you, my creator of the universe. I met Les in Al-Anon, gosh, 13 years ago. And um, I was instantly drawn to him because we have a lot of the same mindsets and we've stayed connected over the years and who would have thought I was I don't know 30 barely 30 hanging out with you you had your white Mercedes and now I'm driving a white Mercedes and every time I get in it I think of you but that program gave me the friendship of you nowhere else would I be hanging out with this guy so stick around you guys it's pretty pretty remarkable thank you very much I'm less alcoholic. Yes. Why don't we give Alexandra and Katie a hand for a good team? And uh, Carlo, you're the greatest. Food. Well, everybody that brought food, we really appreciate it. Fernando, uh, if you're interested in, in getting involved with this meeting, we have we need some help. You know, cleaning up after the meeting, and we need a. We're looking for a literature person, so if you want to come up and volunteer afterwards, that'd be great. And uh, uh, we want to thank everybody for bringing that food. Food that food is good. Thank you so much. Let's give everybody a hand. I'm your great. I'm your grapevine guy. Meeting in a print. Two years. 54 bucks, one year, 28.97. You can donate it to a recovery house or give it to a friend. You know, what we do here is uh, <clears throat> I give out <clears throat> a couple and you can read it and then bring it back and we'll, we'll redistribute the stuff. So I got one up here I want to give out and it's about the, si- the, the sounds of silence. Uh, there's nothing like, I have to put myself in time out because Sometimes this thing wants to take me on a vacation I don't need to go on, you know. <laughs> but anyway, I got this one here. Sound of silence, really good. Someone want to come up and get it? Come on up and get it. Come on. Come on. 
<laughs> All right. You got it. Thank you so much. Okay. Now here's a good one. Hey, is there anybody out here that doesn't have a sponsor? Raise your hand. Okay, there's one right there. There's two. We got any more? Come on. You don't have a sponsor? Raise your hand. Okay, we got two. Is there anybody out here willing to be a sponsor? Raise your hand. Okay, you, you see all the guys and all the women? So you, you can go talk to somebody. Get somebody temporarily, because it's really important, you know. And I got this great find here. Uh, sponsorship. It's got a lot of different stories about sponsorship. Somebody want it? Come on up and get it. up we show up <laughs> AA will catch us that's for sure here's a lady on a trapeze trapeze tramp yeah okay <laughs> come on someone come up and get the last one I'll tell you what come on David thanks Les come here wait a minute come on Thank you. Yeah. My name is David. I'm an alcoholic. These are the promises. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom, a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations that used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? No, we think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. Now, after a moment of silence for the alcoholic who still suffers, will you please join me in the Lord's Prayer? Um, wait. For the alcoholic who still suffers in and out of these rooms and innocent children caught in the crossfire, please join me in the Lord's Prayer. Whose Father? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thy is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. You come back. Here. This is for you. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
Self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. Does not wish to engage in any controversy. Neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and to help other alcoholics achieve sobriety. Now, is there any other alcoholics? And any with the 30 days within 30 days? Oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, we will now have have a reading of how it works by... Uh, oh, Fernando, alcoholic? Fernando, how Fernando. it works. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program. Usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. There are such unfortunates. They are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Their chances are less than average. There are those who with, with grave emotional disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. Our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like. What happened and what we are like now. If you have decided you want what we have and are willing to get the... And the get what we have and you're ready to take certain steps <clears throat> and some of these we balked we thought we could find an easier softer way but we could not with all the earnestness at our command we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas and the result was nil until we let go absolutely remember that we deal with alcohol cunning baffling powerful 
Without help, it is too much for us. But there is one who has all power, and that one is God. May you find him now. Half measures avail us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We ask his protection and care with complete abandon. Here are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. One, we admitted we were powerless over our call, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us. Power to carry it out. No, I messed up. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitting it. 11. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to our colleagues and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Hey, yeah. Many, of <laughs> Many of us exclaim, What an order! I can't go through with it. Do not be discouraged. No one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. We are not saints. What's the point? The point is that we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. The principles we have set down are guides to progress. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. Our description of the alcoholic, the chapter to the agnostic, and our personal adventures before and after make clear three pertinent ideas. A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own lives. B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. And C, that God could and would if he were sought. And the Twelve Traditions, Aloysius. Okie dokie. My name's Aloysius, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> Twelve traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon AA unity. <clears throat> Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop drinking. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or AA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the alcoholic who still suffers. Six, an AA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the AA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every AA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Alcoholics Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, AA as such ought never be organized. 
but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. 10. Alcoholics Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues. Hence, the AA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. 11. Our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, and films. Twelve, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personality. Amen to that. <clears throat> thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, this is the 31st of August. That's June. That's July. Here we are. Yeah, it's a birthday. My my friend at church, he's got a birthday today. Yeah. Now, you going to start reading it? Mm -hmm. Or is that what we do? You, yeah. You, yeah, you first. Okay. Um, Fernando, alcoholic. Fernando. August 31st, a unique program. Thank you, James, for starting us off. Oh. Alcoholics Anonymous will never have a professional class. We have gained some understanding of the ancient words, freely you have received, freely give. We have discovered that at, at that point of professionalism, money and spirituality do not mix. 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, page 166. I believe that Alcoholics Anonymous stands alone in the treatment of alcoholism because it is based solely on the principle of one alcoholic sharing with another alcoholic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is what makes the program unique. When I received that I want, when I decided that I wanted to stay sober, I called a woman who I knew was a sober member of AA and she carried the message of Alcoholics Anonymous to me. She received no monetary compensation, but rather was paid by staying sober another day herself. Today, I could ask for no payment other than another day free from alcohol. So it is that in that respect, I am generously paid for, for my labor. Amen. Fernando Alcoholic, I, it kind of reminds me of when uh, Bob and Bill went to go see um, D. What was the guy's name? Mr. D. Um, the uh, the third Remember person. Number three. Yeah. Number three. Can you remember? His name was Bill. Bill. Yeah, Bill. Was, uh, was, uh, All right. Well, well, where is that story? What was the name of the story? You remember? It would be uh, in Bill's Bill's story, I think. No, it's not. It's, no? It has his own story. I don't remember, guys. Uh, he. Uh, Anyway, in, in it, he's, he, they illustrate, Bill says, uh, they're talking to him, and he goes, you have done a great deal of talk. Let us talk a minute or two, because the guy was a brash salesman, remember? Yeah. Yeah. And he knew all about Christianity or whatever, and, but he couldn't stay sober. So they, they gave him three requirements. One, actually, I wrote it down right here last time I was here. They gave him three requirements. You know what the three requirements is? Is... Um, one, you have to be willing to pass it on to another person. Remember? Right. And then the other one was, uh, uh, you gotta, uh, you gotta, 
the third one was you got to have a uh, who's your God. You got to have a strong God relationship. Uh -huh, he told uh -huh. he he told him that. Yeah, in yeah. the right place. Mm -hmm. But you know, um, that's a great formula for the uh, concentration of, uh, in other words, for our foundation of growth. Here it is. Bear with me. It says, uh, page one eighty six. We have a program, Bill said, requirements, three requirements. Pass it on to someone who wants it and needs it. Two, are you convinced that on your own, your lonely, desperate self, uh, your demolitions of your life, you're out of control? You you have no, no defense against the first drink. Are you convinced? No. no. And number three... Do you have a higher power? I love this one. This one, we lose a lot of people because we don't get down the brass and tacks who your higher power is and what does it mean to turn things over skillfully. You know, when the shit hits the fan again, uh, they, they, they tend to all thinking, trying to, you know, they don't turn their lives and their wills over to God properly. They don't do a proper third step prayer. Do you have a higher power? Where are you? And God, where are you in God? Does He do everything for you, or does He do nothing for you? Zero. Okay. <laughs> is, is your God? Does your God has your God done? What is, you can tell what the guys had in, in life. They, they come in here, Ricky, with alcohol. Said, I go. I want you to help someone else and get better, and pray for others. Well, God has to do something for me. He never does anything for me. <laughs> And, and so you ought to find out where they're at. Either, either God is everything or That's God right. hasn't done anything for That's them. Right. So you, you've got a lot of work to do. And don't let them get to here, which they do, you know. And um, I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Al. All right. All right, here we go. Alcoholics Anonymous will never have a professional class. We have gained some understanding of the ancient words. Freely you have received, freely give. We have discovered that at the point of professionalism, money and spirituality do not mix. Twelve Steps and Twelve Traditions, page 166. I believe that Alcoholics Anonymous stands alone in the treatment of alcoholism because it is based solely on the principle of one alcoholic sharing with another alcoholic. This is what makes the program unique. When I decided that I wanted to stay sober, I called a woman who I knew was a sober member of AA, and she carried the message of Alcoholics Anonymous to me. She received no monetary compensation, but rather was paid by staying sober another day herself. Today I could ask for no payment other than a day free. I messed that up. Other than another day free from alcohol. So in that respect, I am generously paid for my labor. Mm. God needs to help me with this one because uh, nothing's popping out to me at this moment. Um, I think what uh, I what mar kind of marveled at was how all of this stuff, and when Fernando was reading, uh -huh. 
uh, it came to me also was the amazing miracle of, that, of Alcoholics Anonymous. How all of these things that came together, all of, all of these tiny details came together from two drunks who were, and Bob was not in good shape when Bill came to see him, and Bill wasn't in really good spiritual condition because he had a bad business deal, and it, it really threw him for a loop because he thought he had it made, and he didn't. And he got called, pulled up short, and he said, wait a minute, you know, uh, sometimes I think those things are meant to give us an opportunity to trust uh, Amen. our God. You know, we get pulled up short because we're driving ahead. Now, ambition is great. It's a motivator, right? It's an instinct. If we didn't have ambition, we wouldn't have uh, x-ray machines, you know, <laughs> things like that. Uh, but if, you know, those instincts, if they go too far, like you want to conquer the world with elephants, <clears throat> Uh, that's ambition <coughs> to me. Just, uh, maybe that's not a good example, but that's that's going too far with ambition. So I think the line for me is, uh, I need to get some <laughs> ambition. I, I'm not. I'm not. I don't have a problem having too much. I have too little. Uh, when I was uh, teaching school, I. So I had thought many times about promotions, you know. I wanted to get promoted. Reading of May 29, 2 Samuel chapter 14 to 1522. Lord, thank you for giving us an ear to hear and eyes to see your word and what the Holy Spirit is teaching us in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 2 Samuel chapter 14. Job realized how much the king longed to see Absalom, so he sent for a woman from Tekoa who had a reputation for great wisdom. He said to her, Pretend you are in mourning, wear mourning clothes, and don't put on lotions. Act like a woman who has been mourning for the dead for a long time. Then go to the king and tell him the story I am about to tell you. Then Joab told her what to say. When the woman from Tekoa approached the king, she bawled with her face to the ground in deep respect and cried out, O oh, king, help me. What's the trouble? The king asked. Alice, I'm a widow, she replied. My husband is dead. My two sons had a fight out in the field, and since no one was there to stop it, one of them was killed. Now the rest of the family is demanding let us have your sons. We will execute him for murdering his brother. He doesn't deserve to inherit his family's property. They want to extinguish the only coat I have left, the only coal I have left, and my husband's name and family will disappear from the face of the earth. Leave it to me, the king told her. Go home, and I'll see to it that no one touches him. Oh, thank you, my lord, the king, the woman from the court replied. If you are criticizing for helping me, let the blame fall on me and on my father's house and let the king and his throne be innocent. 
If anyone objects, the king said, bring him to me and I can assure you he will never complain again. Oh, that's a great scripture. Then she said, please swear to me by the Lord your God that you won't let anyone take vengeance against my son. I want no more bloodshed. As surely as the Lord lives, he replied, not a hair of your son's head will be disturbed. Please allow me to ask one more thing of my Lord the king, she said. Go ahead and speak, he responded. She replied, why don't you do as much for the people of God as you have promised to do for me? You have convicted yourself in making this decision because you have refused to bring home your own banished son. All of us must die eventually. Our lives are like water spilled out on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God does not just sweep life away. Instead, he devises ways to bring us back when we have been separated from him. I have come to plead with my Lord, the king, because people have threatened me. I said to myself, perhaps the king will listen to me and rescue us from those who would cut us off from the inheritance. God has given us. Yes, my Lord, the king will give us peace of mind again. I know that you are like an angel of God in discerning good from evil. May the Lord your God be with you. I must know one thing, the king replied, and tell me the truth. Yes, my lord, the king, she responded. Did Joab put you up to this? And the woman replied, my lord, the king, how can I deny it? Nobody can hide anything from you. Yes, Joab sent me and told me what to say. He did it to place the matter before you in a different light. But you are as wise as an angel of God. And you understand everything that happens among us. Would you please continue reading for a minute? Um, I'm trying to find out where we left. So the king sent for Job, verse 21. Uh, nine, 13, 15. Oh, you're not all the way down. 21. But he said to the king, I vow by the Lord. 21, verse 21. It's verse 21. Oh, different 21 over there. Okay, hold on. I just lost my space. Okay, I'll keep reading. Oh, uh, here it is. So the king sent for Joab and told him, All right, go and bring back the young man Absalom. Joab bowed with his face to the ground in deep respect and said, At last I know that I have gained your approval, my lord, the king, for you have granted me this request. Okay. Then Joab sent, uh, went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king gave this order. Absalom may go to his own house, but he must never come into my presence. So Absalom did not see the king. Now Absalom was praised as most the most handsome man in all of Israel. He was flawed. Flawed from head to toe. He cut his hair only once a year and then only because it was so heavy. When he weighed out, weighed it out, it came to five pounds. Wow. He had three sons and one daughter, and his daughter's name was Tamar, and she was very beautiful. Absalom lived in Jerusalem for two years, but he never got to see the king. Then Absalom sent for Joab to ask him to intercede for him, but Joab refused to come 
Absalom sent for him a second time, but again Joab refused to come. So Absalom said to his servants, Go and set fire to Joab's barley field and the field next to mine. So they set his field on fire as Absalom had commanded. Then Joab came to Absalom at his house and demanded, Why did your servant set my field on fire? And Absalom replied, Please, I wanted you to ask the king why he brought me back from Jashur. If he didn't intend to see me, I might as well have stayed there. Let me see the king. If he finds me guilty or anything, then let him kill me. So Joab the king what Absalom had said. So Joab told the king what Absalom had said. Then at last David summoned Absalom, who came and bowed low before the king, and the king kissed him. After this, Absalom brought a chariot and horses, and he hired fifty bodyguards to run ahead of him. He got up early every morning and went out to the gate of the city when people brought a case to the king for judgment. Absalom would ask where in Israel they were from and they would tell him their tribe. Then Absalom would say, you've really got a strong case here. It's too bad the king doesn't have anyone to hear it. I wish I were the judge. Then everyone could bring their cases to me for judgment and I would give them justice. When people tried to bow before him, Absalom wouldn't let them. Instead, he took them by the hand and kissed them. Absalom did this with everyone who came to the king for judgment. And so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. After four years, Absalom said to the king, Let me go to Hebron to offer a sacrifice to the Lord and fulfill a vow I made to him. For while your servant was at Yeshur in Aram, I promised to sacrifice to the Lord in heaven, O oh, oh Lord in Hebron, if he would bring me back to Jerusalem. All right, the king told him, go and fulfill your vow. So Absalom went to Hebron, but while he was there, he sent secret messengers to all the tribes of Israel to stir up a rebellion against the king. As soon as you hear the ram's horn, his message read, you're to say Absalom has been crowned king in Hebron. He took 200 men from Jerusalem with him as guests, but they knew nothing of his intentions as guests, but they knew nothing of his intentions. While Absalom was offering the sacrifices he sent for Athedopel, one of David's counselors who lived in Gilo, soon many others also joined Absalom. And the conspiracy gained momentum. Soon others A messenger soon arrived in Jerusalem to tell David, All Israel has joined Absalom to a conspiracy against you. Uh, they then we must flee at once, or it will be too late. David urged his men, Hurry, if we get out of the city before Absalom arrives, both we and the city of Jerusalem will be spared from disaster. We are with you, his advisors replied. Do what you think is best. So the king and all his household set out at once. He left no one behind except ten of his concubines to look after the palace. The king and all his people set out on foot, pausing at the last house to let the king's men move past to lead the way. There were 600 men from Gath who had come with David along with the king's bodyguard. Then the king turned and said to Etai, 
a leader of the men of Gath, why are you coming with us? Go back to King Absalom, for you are a guest in Israel, a foreigner in exile. You arrived only recently, and should I force you today to wander with us? I don't even know where we will go. Go on back and take your kinsmen with you. Man, may the Lord show you his unfailing love and faithfulness. But Atai said to the king, I vow by the Lord and by your own life that I will go anywhere. I go wherever my lord the king goes, no matter what happens, whether it means life or death. David replied, all right, come with us. So Atai, Atai and all his men and their families went along. Amen. Amen. Wonderful reading. Thank you so much. You know, I was really interested in the beginning how David, <clears throat> the gap is he didn't see the other side of the uh, of the argument when the lady came and asked for her son that they were going to kill him and call it, you know, cut off the name. Uh, you know, usually a good judge hears the other side of what the, why would they want to kill him? But it, it sounds good to give mercy to the uh, to the widow. And then she applied it to his situation, which Absalom is the uh, is the heir of the kingdom. But he also has other sons too, like Solomon, and Solomon is the oldest. Um, so I forgot what what thing Absalom did that he had to flee. Didn't he kill the uh, one of his other brothers because he raped Tamar? Yeah, not yet, not I, yet, maybe. I, I don't. I'm kind of with you right there. I think gotta know what happened. In the Why he left? Yeah. But you know, once a bad seed, he starts again. And uh, how many years has it been since uh, David conquered uh, Saul and then conquered the Philistines and then had peace, and then Absalom grew uh, to a man. Maybe he was 25 years old. So Israel had forgotten all of the King David's accomplishments that he has done, you know, because, you know, the Bible always says how, how, how well loved he was by all the tribes. And then once Absalom started doing, saying, I'm a, I'm a, they're, they're, he started being kind to the people, it just uh, got word of, word of mouth went to all the tribes. So when he said, I'm the next king, they were probably uh, bored of their lives and wanted some kind of action. So they said, yes, you know, it must have been maybe 30 years that David's probably been on the throne. And and it is so wisdom, too, that David is so smart that he said right away, he says, let's get everybody out of the out of the city, out of the 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 palace, you know, and it, because Solomon may come and revolt any time and kill everybody. So it's just an amazing story of uh, his own son. You know, it's not even taking over his uh, his kingdom. Yeah, I, I just went to the previous um, chapter, chapter 13. Uh-huh. Um, and he did, he did, Ammon did violate the sister and it made very, Absalom very angry. And um, and that and he killed him. It says over here. It says Absalom told his men, "Wait until Ammon gets drunk, then at my signal, kill him. Don't be afraid. I'm the new. I'm the one who's forgiven the command. Take courage and do it." 
So Absalom signaled they murdered Ammon. So Absalom signaled they murdered Ammon. Then the other sons of the king jumped on their mules and they fled. Wow. Okay. As they were on their way back to Jerusalem, this report reached David. Absalom has killed all the king's son. Not one is left alive. Amen. Amen. But I think the whole theme of the beginning, like I said, was um, God's love for people, God's forgiveness. And it's like when we get separated from sin and, and we and God recovers our lives, he restores us and puts us in the right situation where we should be. He makes us well. And the, his great mercy of the God that we can compel that he, we were sinners, not we're, we're saved through God. Amen. Yeah, one of the, the key scriptures here, as uh, we read it, and you go into number 14, it says, All of us must die eventually. Our lives are like water spilled out on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God does not just sweep life away, okay? Instead, he devises ways to bring us back when we have been separated from him. And I think that's a real good word for today, you know, as we need to reach people to believe that they're forgiven people if they do believe in Jesus Christ, that that God, um, you know, and maybe they backslidden or something or, you know, they think what whatever they did, like they're losing their salvation and they're just struggling with condemnation but i like i like what that says it says that god does not just sleep you know he doesn't just toss you out to you know rot he devises little tactics and strategies and ways sometimes for other people or situations that will cause you to look back to him and repent and and you know and and continue you on the right path you know um so I, 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 that's the one, the number thing that I, that stood out for me here was that, um, you know, that, that's, I don't know, that just jumped out at me as I read that. Amen. Anything else? Uh, no, uh, it's just interesting that uh, a son would turn, you know, I guess he was good looking, he was tall, you know, he just looked like uh, someone they would want for him to be a, a leader. And, but he was also wanting to take power, right? Yeah. So... It's amazing how the Israelite, they, like if they didn't have any, um, maybe the, the people that they were old when David was young and became king and took over all those things, they all died away. Mm-hmm. That generation died. So they didn't have, the new generation didn't have the old generation to remember them of all the achievements David had done. And they just tired of the old, so they wanted a new king. That's what I see. Um, all right, thank you. Now you go ahead and read the next one, John 14. You ready? That's no, John chapter 18. Oh, yeah, John chapter 18, verses 1 through 24. 
After saying these things, Jesus crossed the Kindred Valley with his disciples and entered a grove of olive trees. Judas, the betrayer, knew this place because Jesus had often gone there with his disciples. The leading priests and Pharisees had given Judas a contingent of Roman soldiers and temple guards for accompanying him. Now, with blazing torches, lanterns, and weapons, they arrived at the olive grove. Jesus fulfilled, fully realized that all that was going to happen to him, so he stepped forward to meet them. Who are you looking for? they asked. Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. As Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and fell to the ground. Once more, he asked them, who are you looking for? And again, they replied, Jesus, the Nazareth. I told you that I am he, said Jesus. And since I am the one you want, let these others go. He did this to fulfill his own statement. He did not lose a single one of those you have given me. Mm. His own statement. Remember something? Yeah. Then Simon Peter drew a sword and slashed off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest's slave. But Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword back in its sheet. Shall I not drink from the cup of suffering the Father has given me? And so the soldiers, their commanding officers, and the temple guards arrested Jesus and tied him up. First they took him to Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest at that time. Caiaphas was the one who had told the other Jewish leaders, It's better that one man should die for the people Simon Peter followed Jesus as did another of the disciples. That after that other disciple was acquainted with the high priest, so he was allowed to enter the high priest's court with Jesus. Peter had stayed outside the gate. Then the disciple who knew the high priest spoke to the woman watching at the gate, and she let Peter in. The woman asked Peter, Hey, you're not one of the men's disciples, are you? No, he said, I am not. Because it was cold, the household servants and the guards had made a charcoal fire. They stood around it, warming, warming themselves, and Peter stood with them, warning, warming himself. Inside, the high priest began asking Jesus about his followers and what he had been teaching them. Jesus replied, Everyone knows what I teach. I have preached regularly in the synagogue and the temple with the people gathered. I have not spoken in secret. Why are you asking me this question? Ask those who heard me. They know what I did, what I said. Then one of the temple guards standing there slapped Jesus across the face. Is that the way to answer the high priest, he demanded? Jesus replied, if I said anything wrong, you must prove it. But if I'm speaking the truth, why are you beating me? Then Annas bound Jesus and sent him to Caiaphas, the high priest. Pass. Pass. You going to comment on it? Yeah, well, it's interesting that it says that Jesus fulfilled his own comment, you know, comment. I haven't seen that before. That Jesus has said, uh, I will not lose none of these, one of them. 
And then he fulfilled it by fulfilling the action. Yeah, yeah, that's earlier in the book of John, how that we see in the movie. <laughs> yeah, and then when he said, I am he, and they, and they fell backward, they drew back and fell to the ground. I believe that when he said, I am he, is the same way when people get slain in the spirit. The spirit of God is so strong, mm-hmm. it kind of short circuits your nervous system and your legs go, they just go limb. You just fall down. And he was showing them, I got power, guys. Don't even think about getting any of these disciples. Yeah, I I, I, I read the same thing, and I'm thinking, wow, had I been part of that army and I got knocked down like that, I definitely would know he's somebody, you know? Yeah, so back to the ground. Not just ordinary, you know, he, he is. And then yeah. once more he asked them, and they replied, Jesus and Nazareth, and then I, I told you that I am he. That must have mm-hmm. had a little more. Mm-hmm. Uh, they must have got a little daze on that second one because the power still came out the same. And Jesus says, since I am the one you want, let these others go. He must, they must have surrounded the other guys. He did this to fulfill his own statement. I did not lose a single one of these. You have given me to the Lord. Amen. Seems like uh, very It's interesting to see that John was uh acquainted with the high priest, you know, cuz John was probably uh, a student there of the word of God. Now you're talking about a fisherman. Why would the fisherman be acquainted with a high priest? I don't know. He's presumably he was allowed to enter their their courtyard. He was just had access. I mean, he must have been very well. He must have come in and out, right? Uh-huh. So he, you know, or or he went in there and work for it and take notes because uh-huh. he was a good writer. Uh-huh. If he wrote the thing, right? Right. They probably needed him for his uh, letter making uh, skills. Maybe that's why he was acquainted uh-huh. with them, right? Because he was a learned man. I mean, he knew the scriptures back and forward, and they knew how to read and write, even though they were uh, commercial fishermen. His dad had had owned a bunch of fleets, a lot of boats. Okay. You have any more on that? No, I just, uh, going back to Caiaphas here, uh, you know, um, in number 12 there, it says, so the soldiers, their commanding officers, and the temple guards arrested Jesus and tied him up. First, they took him to Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest at that time. Caiaphas was the one who had told the other Jewish leaders, okay, it's better that one man should die for the people. So it's like they knew, you know, they kind of mm-hmm. knew, like it's better that he's dying for the people. Right? Isn't that what Jesus came to do? He loved God sent him, you know, because he loved the world that that we wouldn't perish, right? Mm-hmm. So I just thought that was. In, I know that we picked that up in the movie all the time. He's like prophesying or confirming that it's best for one person to take all of the judgment on on them at the cross. 
Amen. Amen. You know, uh, let's go ahead and read the uh, today's study from the New Living Testament. It says, trying to protect Jesus, Peter wielded his sword and wounded the high priest slave. But Jesus told Peter to put away his sword and allow God's plan to unfold. Peter wanted to fight the evil before him. Evil had come in the form of a soldier with weapons, and Peter would defend Jesus by his sword. But another thing, Jesus was the one who asked for the swords. you have a couple of swords? Okay, that will do. He says, in other words, this was done, the sword thing was done to fulfill an Old Testament prophecy that said he was numbered among the rebels. Okay, when Jesus' action rebel against authority there. But Jesus refused to let Peter attack evil weapons of evil. Jesus chose to attack evil by another way. Jesus will kill death by bringing new life. When we face evil in our world and in our lives, we may seek to overpower it and match it blow for now. Match it blow for, for blow for blow. But Jesus calls us to a deeper battle, a spiritual battle, a battle for souls, a battle for life, and love over death and destruction. Peter came to understand this later, he wrote, to God-chosen people. Don't repay evil for evil, says the Lord. Don't retaliate with insults when you when you people insult. When people insult you, instead, pay them back with a blessing that it is what God has called you to do, and he will bless you for it, First Peter 3, 9. Okay. Just right now, this is confirmation of what we were discussing earlier. Remember? A little louder. Mm-hmm. We, this is a little confirmation about First Peter 3, 9. Whenever you have a situation with somebody... They persecute you. They talk about you. They've hurt you, harmed you, whatever. Mm-hmm. Our first, uh, our first inclination as a fleshly people is to, like they said, don't exchange an insult for an insult or evil for don't repay evil for an evil, right? Right. So, the the strategy that we have here from God is that we would, we would bless the people that have harmed you. Okay. And um, that's the scripture says when we do that, we inherit the blessing. We're called to do this and we inherit the blessing as well. When you choose to bless somebody that has, you know, um, hurt you or, you know, harmed you or um, insulted you, talked bad about you, made fun of you, all those things. Um, it said instead pay them back with a blessing that is what called you to do and you will you will and he will bless you for that now that's first peter 3 9 so i guess my my common sense says that's a good idea if if i need to forgive somebody i start to bless them right because i need to get that junk out of the my heart also i'm only human so if I begin to pray for the person, for their well-being, their, you know, like you guys do in AA, um, you pay for their protection, well-being, their prosperity, their health. You know, those are things that we can pray over somebody so that we can release that out of our, our spirit. Okay, so 
I guess we were talking about this earlier in the room. And I brought the guy who wrote the book. His name is Carrie Kirkwood. And it said power of blessing. You know, and the way God spoke to him was when he was driving in traffic and some guy cut him off. And he and he's a pastor and he called the person an idiot. And the Holy Spirit brought this concept to to the forefront that, hey, that person's a child of God as well. And, you know, he began to teach on the power of blessing a problem or a situation that is hard to go through, you know. Um, and it's, it was, I'm just saying that's very powerful that God maybe wants to refresh us in this area, you know. And, uh, wow, I'm impressed, Lord. Very good. Thank you very much. Appreciate Amen. Yeah. Okay. Okay, reading the Psalms, uh, praying the Psalms, really, meditate on why God's command tastes sweet. While remaining true to them, something brings, sometimes brings suffering. Huh. Meditate on why God's command tastes sweet. The wisdom of God tastes sweet. Amen. Psalms 119, verses 97 to 112. Oh, how I love the Lord's instructions. I think about them all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are my constant guide. Yes, I have more insight than my teachers, for I am always thinking of your laws. I am I am even wiser then my elders, for I have kept your commandments. I have refused to walk on any evil path so that I may remain obedient to your word. I haven't returned or turned away from your regulations, for you have taught me well. How sweet your words taste to me. They are sweeter than honey. You are making... Your commandments gave, give me understanding. No wonder I hate every false way of life. Amen. Wow. Beautiful. And it says, Your word, and this is Psalm 19, 97 to 112, so I'm at 105. It says, Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. I promised it once and I'll promise it again. I will obey your righteous regulations. I have suffered much, O Lord. Restore my life again as you have promised. Lord, accept my offering of praise and teach me your regulations. My life constantly hangs in the balance, but I will not stop obeying your instructions. The wicked have set their traps for me, but I will not turn from your commandments. Your laws are my treasure. They are my heart's delight. I'm determined to keep your decrees to the very end. Amen. Proverbs 16, 8-9 says, Better to have little with godliness than to be rich and dishonest. Ain't that the truth? I love that. We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. Amen. Amen. So that goes with your word is a lamp unto guide to my feet and a light for my path. So apparently the words of God construct our future, our day. Mm-hmm. You know, the way we're reading them, it makes it makes for a good tomorrow what we're doing today. 
We can make our plans, but the Lord determines our step. Lord, we ask you to guide our steps successfully, that we may know you and seek you and rejoice and teach others about you. In Jesus' mighty name, fill our cup, Lord. Fill it up. Amen. 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 Anything else, babe? All right, have a good one. God bless you. Thank you for listening. We'll see you in the next clip. Amen. God bless you.